this is Swampside Chats. A podcast where, every week, communists sit down to shoot the shit about current events, history, political economy, and theory. In an effort to analyze and better understand the far right, we're starting a new reading series called In the Enemy Camp. This week, we sit down to discuss Dark Enlightenment by Nick Land. I'm Jake, I'm with Communist League Tampa, and joining me tonight is Rosa. Uh, Rosa here, um, getting thirsty for annihilation. Lexi. Lexi, about 50 blue pills deep. And Donald. Hey, it's Donald accelerating the future towards oblivion. Okay, so Donald, what the fuck did we just read, and why are we reading this? Um, well... I asked myself the same question when I finished it because it was really fucking bizarre. But I guess um, I wanted to actually read something that is influential on today's reactionaries and kind of see what their version of like high theory is. And strangely enough, Nick Land is actually respected by some leftists. Like... Uh, they're leftists who defend, like Jehu, for example, didn't uh, Jehu say that uh, Nick Land is the greatest uh, living Marxist? He said something like one of the last serious communists. I can't remember where I found the quote. Yeah. But I, I was looking for it because I called him on it and he was like, I never said anything like that. What are you talking about? The SPD was state socialist from the beginning and state socialism yeah. was fascist, but the SPD wasn't fascist. But Nick but Land also- is the last real Marxist. Yeah, and, and I even see leftists defending him sometimes. Like, ex- like the accelerationist crowd will often defend him, saying like, "Oh, you know, we can't dismiss this thinker just because of his racism." Oh, but, he was um, so, he was so different in the nineties. Yeah. Who is Nick? Oh, yeah, he had he yeah, had a so different. He had a whole career in the nineties of kind of being this. He had what was called um. I think it's called a Creative Communications Research Center unit. unit CCRU. Cyber Cyberculture Research Unit. Okay, yeah, it was um that's actually interesting Cybernetic. because it was kind of this weird attempt to combine futurism with techno, like um, and mixed media and different art forms of uh yeah art. The, it was kind the of webs- a, What are you gonna say? The website is. St- the the website is still up. Yeah, and it's interesting because you had a lot of um, artistic types involved in this, and it was kind of, um, you know, in the 90s, you had a lot of people who wanted to kind of explode the, the newfound possibilities of creativity provided by the internet. And so there was this very futuristic, you know, Silicon Valley ideology that obviously, you know, this was in the UK, but this ideology still existed elsewhere and um different um musical artists one probably the most famous would be code nine who's a dubstep producer was involved and um it was it was kind of this weird um high art pretentious subcultural thing 
And Nick Land was yeah. basically this Deleuzian philosopher who basically saw he kind of starts with Marx's idea on technology that the uh, accumulation of capitalism like accelerates the development of the forces of production according to the needs of the market. So he kind of takes this idea, but instead of saying that capitalism needs to be abolished, he says, well, why not just, you know, let capitalism run as free as possible and see, you know, what, and you know, let the spontaneity, spontaneity of the market, you know, create, you know, whatever it wants and kind of create this Blade Runner type society, I guess. I don't know. That's kind of his, the, the view he's coming from. He's also very nihilist. He's saying, you know, oh, who, who really cares if there's like a human cost to any of this stuff? You know, it's morality is just like a, a Christian construct. Yeah. If I was creating like a Shadowrun character who was like a professor in like that world, like it would basically be this guy. Like the yeah. whole thing, the whole thing is corny as shit. Yeah. So yeah. He's, he's basically, it was like a Deleuzian postmodernist futurist in the 90s. And then I guess he moved to China. I think what what was it again? I think Rosa he, knows he moved about to, this. He moved to Taiwan. Taiwan. Okay, so Nick Land moves to Taiwan, and he That's starts. It. He actually wrote polemics like praising the Chinese state as kind of a superior form of capitalism, because. Yeah. In the end, he just kind of ties into his little argument that he makes in this piece against democracy. And he well, kind of sees Chinese capitalism as like a, a better way of running capitalism because it's he, so technocratic and authoritarian. Yeah, he references that in the piece. And he basically says that like, you know, China will have a dynamic future, but um, India, by contrast, has already ceded too much ground to like democratic degeneration, essentially. Yeah. And so I think he, he has these libertarian um, economic views. And I think the dark enlightenment is him really just coming to realize what like these, this extremist libertarianism like, looks like in practice. Because in the end, if you truly believe that property rights are like the sole norm of justice, then you know, there's a lot of racist implications of that, especially if you, if you, especially if you live in a society like today's where, you know, people of color are economically disadvantaged. And, well, and there's another character here that we shouldn't forget too, because like he has this guru from like this mm. like obscure blog called Unqualified oh God, Reservations. Uh, yeah, the guy's bug. name is, I guess, Mencius Goldbug. Um, yeah, that's his. Bug. That's old bug. Yeah, his that's real name his... is Curtis Yarvin, and he actually is a Silicon Valley like startup guy. Okay, and did, did he do anything that we would know, or is it something more obscure? Um, he just wrote this blog. He made a ton of money in um Silicon Valley. Um, he runs an obscure startup. I'm not sure. I can't remember what it's called. It's nothing interesting uh-huh. that would be mainstream or known. But his real name is Curtis Yarvin. But he he blogged on name Mencius Moldbug, and I actually I also read some of his blogs, and they're actually more unreadable than Nick Land because he kind of just rambles and rambles and rambles. <laughs> but um, he kind of has this. He's basically kind of just re, revitalizing an, an argument that I've heard so many times from anti-democrats and anti-republicans from the past that I've read. That basically the democratic state is degenerative to liberalism, 
and liberalism is simply the rule of law and the rule of property norms. And so another thinker similar to this is Hans Hermann Hoppe, who um, basically advocates what he calls a private law society. That would basically just be a bunch of different little fiefdoms where the, the and the idea of, of Moldbug and people like Hoppe is they basically want to decentralize the state into a bunch of like a bunch of kind of cartels, I guess, that are run by corporations. And it, instead of electing a president and electing like a, you know, a, a electorate, a, a representative body, you would simply just have like a CEO be appointed of the country and they would just control everything and be ruler for life. So it's basically an argument for monarchy. And well, so and, well, the, the idea argument is that this society would be more effective at protecting property rights. Well, and it argues like the humanity of it would be that people would have no voice but the freedom to exit, right? Yes, the, the argument is that you, you they, they say that democracy is having voice in how society is run. And so if you have too much democracy, people have too much voice, and that means that they're just going to manipulate the state into like some form of socialism that, you know, they, they call it looting the state through democracy basically. And so they basically think that, yeah, if you let people enough people vote, they're just going to vote in like, you know, socialists who are going to basically like make it impossible for the, the free market to run anyway. So you might as well just have a monarch and they have this weird idea of time preference too. Yeah, that figures into it pretty heavily too. But I just want to look at the, this like monarchist thing because what they argue is that the check on the power of the state would be that people are allowed to leave whenever they want. Yeah, but, it's called voiceover exit. But that, I mean, if you think about that for like more than five minutes, like it, it, the concept just doesn't hold up at all. Yeah, I mean, you could leave wherever you want to go to whatever shithole is next door, and it's I guess even given that you have the you know, economic ability to leave in the first place like well and also the idea is like okay all the people in the nation are shareholders and the government is run by like executives who are accountable to the shareholders or something that, or something to that effect that they provide the state or the state is the thing that basically provides a service and if it provides good services people will remain and if it doesn't they'll leave but you know if these individual states um if if their mandate is to provide service to their citizens or whatever you want to consumers or whatever you want to call them in this thing. Well, that means that they don't have any responsibilities to anybody outside that group. So it's like, exactly. what's, what's to stop one state from just invading another state and taking all their shit and enslaving the population for the, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's like you literally just yeah. end up writing. Yeah. Well, yeah. Or like you get locked into a contract with the state. And if you try to leave, you're breaking the contract. Like if you're if you're in like a really poor situation, then then you'll probably have to do like a weird contract thing, anyways. Like how do you how do you, how do you regulate this system of like absolute exit? Because the different countries are going to have different levels of development, and yeah, if and these people all hate work with each hate, other, if people economic. hate immigration now. Like, what would do they really actually want a situation where people can go from one state to an, any state they want at any time? Well, I mean, the thing is, be because well, the, the monarch owns the state, they get to decide who can come in, who can come out anyway, right? So that's that not free exit. Yeah, so that's just so, so much for exit if, like, the states you can exit to all have laws against you coming in. So it's just, it's it's not the idea that this is somehow more free and more, you know, I don't know, desirable than having 
one world government that's democratically run is just ridiculous. Yeah, it doesn't it doesn't hold up on its face at all because I mean, like I mean it's it it would work out great for like weird white people who just are afraid of black people and just want to be rich and shit like that. Well, like, this it's is gonna work idea. out. I think this is that's the idea almost. Like he wants eugenics to kind of like create a new aristocracy of the most talented people, but to a certain extent, he actually yeah. seems not like the white nationalist because he thinks that the white nationalists would just you know help the poor whites. Like, um, continue to breed and continue to, um, wait, you know, exist. Are we talking about, are we talking land. about Nicklin or Hope? Or, um, okay, so yeah. seem to hold this position that, like, it's not so much about race as it is about IQ, and they're still racist, but they think that, you know, obviously eugenics would, in their, in their view, eugenics, if applied, would be used against black people. And other non-whites, yeah. But well, it would just go be. It would, they would go also beyond race. Out, yeah, but they would also breed out the whites that they see as being inferior as well. So it's really just about creating a um a new aristocracy. It seems is what they want. Yeah, like that would go beyond even humanity itself. Like they would be I mean, above humanity. I don't know. It's tough to say because a lot of his like race realism in here is more expressed in the negative like it just kind of reads sort of like national review thought on steroids essentially it's like national well, review thought taken yeah. to like its furthest logical extreme he's like he's like incredibly passive aggressive about his racism like he won't go so far as to say that jews are running everything or things like that but he'll be like, uh, you know, the Asians just happen to be like all very civilized and not criminal in any way. This could be because of biology. This could be because of culture. This could be because of both a combination of both. But it doesn't matter. But it doesn't matter. It's just a fact that they're just more civilized. Yeah, you know? he's just he doesn't give a shit like why you know, things are the way they are. He just says, well, this is just, you know, how things are, and we got to deal with it because, yeah. you know. He's, well, he's, the no, what it comes down to is basically he argues, again, like it, this This puts him in a very, like, classical conservative mode because, you know, he argues that it's all really about incentives, right? And he seems to think that people are basically intrinsically lazy and that, society will slouch into de decadence without the right incentive systems in place. So the idea seems to be that if we, if you subsidize poverty, then you're actually rewarding and perpetuating poverty by doing so. And so if you continue to, to subsidize, you know, the poor behavior of different groups, whether they be minorities or whatever, you're just going to keep them locked in, you know, sort of cycles of poverty. But what this basically ignores, whether it, whether it ignores it deliberately or whether he's just kind of blind to it by his own intrinsic, um, you know, limitations of his worldview, is that like poverty sucks. <laughs> like poverty is already kind of its own disincentive. We remain yeah. trapped within it um, for a variety of reasons, but it's it's certainly not like lack yeah. lack of incentives. <laughs> well, he admits that basically people a lot. Of that like certain people are basically just trapped in poverty but he doesn't give a shit he just says yeah. it's nature well they talk about like time like, preference right the idea is that 
people are consistently poor because they don't um, make provision for the future or they don't invest in things down the road and undergo pain in the present in order to reap reward in the future, right? That's like a like a yeah, really base, basic ethical conservative. I mean, thing. maybe maybe he's just being entirely contra contradictory because he basically, like he says in the piece, that he doesn't really have Victorian moral values, and he admits that you know some people are just lot really shitty situation or and are just gonna die in that sort of city, shitty situation. You know, he's, 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 it's strange because yeah, he is very, he, like he even admits that at one point in the piece and he's extremely like pessimistic, pessimistic overall, but he seems to argue that the only solution is still essentially a moral one and that, you know, individuals basically need to focus on the future and endure pain in the present in order to change themselves for the better, which there's true to that, but it ignores something that's really fundamental, which is that people who are on the margins of society to the point where, you know, what they would have to sacrifice in order to make provision for the future is the basic conditions of their living um, are at an intrinsic disadvantage and will often choose, you know, short-term, uh, you know, short-term pleasures or comforts or basic necessities over setting aside provision for the future in a way that, say, like somebody who's a doctor doesn't have to, right? Well, yeah, if you if you're living literally paycheck to paycheck, it's it's. You know, how are you going to save provisions for the future? Like the, the whole time preference idea to me is just just this capitalist logic to its most disturbing. And in a way, it's it's Well it's, here's the, here's here's the mistake it makes. And it makes like like I don't know how much this dude is actually really like because I feel like so far in the conversation there's been this tone that like this guy is like a secret fascist and he's basically using like code words or whatever. I'm not sure that's it. I think this guy is more basically like a classical conservative because what classical conservatives do is they make a very simple mistake. They confuse what is like good personal advice for somebody with broader political solutions to problems. Well, right? the thing well, is, hmm, yeah. Conservative American conservatism itself is a white supremacist movement. Whether it is ultimately a white supremacist movement, it has been from the start. Ever since the Southern strategy, it's pretty much been a white supremacist movement. Like they've been appealing to a white might, they've been appealing to a certain set of white people. Uh, reactionary middle class white people through like dog whistles for years and you know sometimes they ex they've explicitly said it like there was an advisor for bush and reagan that basically went on like sort of a rant thing in an interview about like how he how like the strategy sort of evolved like he admitted he admit, basically admitted to like using dog whistles like just slowly going from saying, you know, uh, N-word, 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 to, like, being more about, like, econ just like focusing queens. on, like, economic, yeah, like, focusing on economic policies that would fuck over black people. Well, I right. think the thing but is... The, that... But, like, the, race, the racism that exists today is not the same racism that existed 50 years ago, 100 years ago, and so forth, and so on and so forth. There has been like actual tangible progress, and the kind of experience that is perpet that or the kind of racism that that is perpetuated on the right stems from like different like structures that exist within society. Does that make any sense? Well, it's important to appreciate how Nick Land is approaching this flirtation with white nationalism, because again, this guy, whatever he was before, he had some kind of Marxist 
tendency. He did think there was some potential for a nihilistic meltdown that could somehow be like a liberatory moment in some kind of anarchisty Marxist sort of way. And over time, he started to realize that that is a very naive fantasy. And this capital as subject kind of tendency is actually something like the Terminator, something, you know, really destructive and all powerful and totalitarian. And to oppose it would only be to like, to invite suffering on oneself. And so while accepting this kind of capital S subject sort of, you know, Deleuzian take on things. In this essay, he reintroduces the old like Hegelian idealist dialectic as the cathedral. Like he kind of identifies that stuff, which is pretty, in I don't know, it's somewhat inconsistent. Like clearly the integrative force in the world right now is capitalism. It destroys, but it, it, it also integrates in that dialectical way. Um, he's not accounting for how much the cathedral and capitalism are, you know, partners. <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean, I'll say I have a couple things to say. One is that his idea of the cathedral is basically Gramsci's hegemony, but instead of being applied to the ruling class of capitalism, he, he kind of says that the real ruling class is it's not the, you know, the capitalists per se, but the state servants that work for them. And so he sees the cathedral as like the ruling ideology of this like strata of the ruling elite, you know, of this kind of this kind of multicultural, um, colorblind ideology or whatever. And yeah, the also, New England like, grievance brigade. Yeah, like the you know, I like think. yeah, exactly. <laughs> like the 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 kind of mainstreamization of feminism, you know. But I think another thing I I actually would push back against the idea. Of it, land is just a classical conservative because yeah he, he is like um he's, he's not quite like edmund burke who is the original classical conservative because edmund burke didn't really see democracy itself as a bad thing he just thought that it had to be introduced as gradually as possible in a very um careful way so as to not erupt society into chaos and revolutions in order to maintain you know, it's a social order. And so we thought that if we move into democracy, it has to be very carefully and, you know, it's going to be baby steps and, you know, the, the elite is going to be guiding them each way of the step. Whereas well, I, I think that his ideas are closer to classical counter-revolution, like more like Joseph the Maestra, who was opposed to democracy as such and wanted to retain the monarchy in face of the French Revolution. Well, I was, I was. I should clarify my the, thoughts real quick. I was referring more like vis-a-vis, -vis, like his views on poverty, essentially, and like you know, sort of how, you know, how groups become and remain poor. And I wasn't really. I wasn't referring necessarily to his broader views on like democracy or like the way this. Oh yeah, like his his views on oh. economics are really just you know basic ass libertarianism, in a lot of ways. But he, he actually, most basic as libertarians don't look at politics, don't think about politics, and don't think about social issues. And so Nick Land actually does, I think, and he ends up realizing that, oh, well, you know, this system right. of decentralized authoritarian that, 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 states is the best way to do it. 
that particular kind of like I'm, ethics of like capitalist realism is something that's common to both libertarians and conservatives and really kind of runs broadly across the right wing spectrum, yeah. except oddly um, enough, like in fascist corners okay. where they do actually kind of advocate for okay, redistribution gonna... within the white class, but which is something that this guy yeah. actually disavows in that in this essay. But anyway. Yeah, I'll, uh, this is a side note, but uh, Mark, Mark Fisher actually came from the same like was in the same think tank, the CCRU think tank as Nick Land. And he wrote like an essay about uh, Nick Land, like Terminator versus Avatar or something like that. Oh, yeah, that's actually interesting. So, yeah, Nick Land really was part of the kind of cultural leftist scene in UK in the 90s. And yeah, so... sort of it. Like Deleuzean the delusion accelerationist kind of cultural left, which is sort of just weird apologetics for neoliberalism, really. But I mean, in the 90s, in like pretty much all Marxists had left to do was to do academic cultural theory. And so in a way, an intellectual like Nick Land is a kind of, you know, like he's a product of that. Yeah, it's kind of funny. There's a book called So You've Been Publicly Shamed. That's fairly popular and in the introduction the author goes off about basically meets up with some people from contemporary people i think from the ccru who have created a twitter bot that's like hashtags like you know foodie you know and says he's gonna eat weird stuff and then has a couple like you know oh i like cock comments you know to like disrupt this person's public image that's, I think, probably the closest that the CCRU and Nick Land have come to scratching the American mainstream, at least. Yeah. Yeah, but anyways, back to back to Nick Land. I think his views are actually in line with the framers of the Constitution. Like, like they were pretty much anti-democratic. Like, Hamilton was almost involved in, like, a coup. To, to, like, install Washington as, like, a dictator. Like, that almost happened. Was that in the play? Hamilton. No, Washington should be king. Gonna kill ya. No, then that wasn't. Yeah, but anyways, yeah. Basically, the founding fathers were extremely hostile to... Hostile to democracy and wanted to establish a constitutional republic that would be run by and f pretty much for all land owning, all land owning white white men. Yeah, pretty white much. Men. I mean, that part where he points out how anti democratic the founding fathers were is, you know, it's it's true. Like it's just you know, all, like you know, leftists already know this. They already know that. You know, the Constitution was actually implemented as a way to, you know, prevent what they would call the tyranny of the majority, which was really that, you know, farmers were given too much power to, yeah. to, to regulate the um, tax prices, you know, to like, regulate how much they were being taxed. And so basically, well, basically the fear. Yeah, basically the fear of democracy is just the fear of class struggle coded through like weird liberal theory well that's what makes yeah. this essay so absurd is that he, he's crying about how like you know cuck the government is basically but also acknowledging that oh well there's these funny liberal natural rights all the people that set it up hate democracy and 
if you were reading this, you'd imagine that the welfare state was doing really well. Like well, that's like yeah, that's what's really bizarre about the entire thing because it's interesting reading this because so much of this like I was feeling like a lot of horseshoe vibes while I was going through this because very much so, so especially so much, after reading Duvet. So much of the way that he reads the contemporary political situation just reads like an inverted version of the way that I would look at it. Where at one point he's talking about how everything is like, you know, every, there's no infighting on the left. Or that the left never fights against like its left wing. That was wing. insane. Yeah. Or, or, or how he talks about... Yeah, that was um, ludicrous. Yeah. Or how he talks about um, basically how the, the Marxism is essentially in control of everything. Like, this is back to like the cathedral concept, right? But it's almost like I don't think he actually thinks that it's Marxism per se more like there's like a weird Protestantism that's like run through the entirety of the enlightenment. Well, that's that's another thing now it's degenerated. Yeah. He basically, well, that's another thing too, is that he basically cultural, cultural Puritanism. He basically argues that essentially libertarianism is the ultimate form of atheism and that, like leftist projects of like universalism and Rousseauianism and everything that he labels it are actually just like a secret form of Christianity. Um, we get into that as well, but I was just going to say that like the left kind of focus has, has, you know, I think largely due to its powerlessness focused so much on superstructure that that's almost become like the sole realm of politics because that's the only place the right has to fight them because you know, the terrain of the economy essentially skews right. So, because like the left has basically kind of accepted capitalist realism too, at least with the realm of like mainstream political discourse. Well, Nicklin doesn't Nicklin doesn't even acknowledge that the economy has gone right wing in the past recent years. Like he's pretty much pretending that the welfare state is still there. Like well, well to him, like anything less than having a gold standard, Ron Paul esque minimal government, yeah, that's is basically left wing, you know, governance. So. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it undermines I mean, his point. Yeah, it undermines his point. Also, like some basic poli sci shit would just under completely undermine his argument. Like there's been research on like what like what interest groups have like more more say in terms of what policies get passed, and it's usually like it's corporate back. There's not even like major interest groups like like unions actually get much much in the way of terms of policy as much as like corporate corporate back interest groups if you love govcorp that sort of you thing. should love the bourgeois state there's it's the best it's the best govcorp yeah, yeah. there could ever be well to be honest it's i can basically see, run like a business i can i can like and yeah he argues for a state that's run like a business and basically the state is just a firm that operates like a business except it gets his income through rentier taxing but I think, you know, it, it would make more sense if he wrote this in the age of classical social democracy or maybe even after Corbyn, you know, almost had a victory. You know, if there, if there actually was a really existing threat of the left using democratic institutions to subvert the state, then, you know, I could, you know, this kind of reaction would make more sense. But it kind of just reads as really paranoid, you know, like. It's, it's, just, really like, it's, sense. it's absurd like, for someone who spent any time as an academic Marxist during the fucking 90s to really think that Marxism is a threat, to really think that democracy is... I mean, I, I suppose he does. he's not really in fear of a revolution. He's just in fear of degeneracy. 
the thing is, he wasn't really a Marxist. He was a delusion. There's a difference. There's a deeper difference because one v- one has a capital centric reading of Marx. The other, the other has like a more balanced understanding of Marx. Like takes into account his whole body of work rather than simply focusing on snippets of capital and that sort of thing. Like that's what accelerationists do. They basically like. They take snippets of capital, they take snippets here and there, and they use it to make some kind of weird argument that Marx abandoned the concept of class struggle in favor of a capital-centric view of history, which there's no indication of that. That's that's what a lot of academic Marxists do, even like value form theorists. And I was going to say, that's like exactly what Paul Stone does. Yeah, that's what Pastone does. That's what Jehu, Jehu, who's not even an academic and screams constantly about how bad Marxists are because they don't really read Marx, does. Like they take things out of context or or like Jehu argues that Marx didn't bring up class struggle and capital, which is like that's absurd. Not even. Yeah, it's incredibly absurd. It's incredible. Even if he did, he doesn't go to like correct himself. Like if he well, was Jehu is actually banned for a reason. He's a he's a Jehu uses uses Twitter for a reason as his primary plat. I mean, he has his blog, but like his primary platform is Twitter because you know it's just like extreme hot takes that are designed to get a reaction out of people. He's a Twitter troll. I mean, I don't I don't know how seriously you can really take his stuff. I mean, he's about as serious as any Marxist blogger. What what you know, I mean, what, but, I, but I think what Rose is getting on here is that there is a um, tendency in Marxist academia to accept capitalism, basically. Sure. But yeah. I mean, yeah. And I, think, I mean, that's, I think, it's, it's academia. It's like a, it, you know, they're not producing something for like a socialist state or for, you know. Well, I mean, in the '60s and '70s, you know, you actually did have people in the universities who, you know, were communist and you know actually did yeah. believe in a, yeah. you know eventually well, some kind of you know overcoming of socialism as possible yeah but they, 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 they were running on fumes from the era of like classical workers struggle though you know once that petered out there's really not much of a like a reason to keep those people yeah, around anymore. a lot of them a lot of them were tr- retreating from viewing the working class as a revolutionary subject and eventually that just degenerated to the point where they were either going into weird cultural shit or just abandon like any conception of Marxism whatsoever and just like get it like they, they latched on to like basically reactionaries. Like I I don't I don't know how to describe it other than like a reactionary retreat from Marxism. Like Well, I think um a lot of it was you have all these petty bourgeois kids from the sixties who want to get involved with Marxism but they can't write about class struggle Marxism in the ag- academy. And so they start the cultural turn allows them to focus on culture and kind of rebrand Marx and then through Gramsci as kind of like this cultural theorist that, um, you also had like on. a new form of like consumer society with like a much higher level of like mediation through, you know, like the proliferation of mass media which probably gave them a sort of a place to go with that. Um, but um, I think what Nick Land is afraid of is not so much communism as 
kind of just like this complete collapse of society. Like he calls it the zombie apocalypse, I think. Right. Like the idea is that, that if we continue to subsidize poverty, that I, like, I don't. Well, we'll I don't think he's necessarily afraid of it. I think he's just like he he expects it. Like he doesn't view it as a good thing, but he just sort of expects it. Well, you'd have to have something like point. that for his like new idea for his idea of what society should be to happen. You would have to have this insane breakdown of social order where everyone's riding around in a Mad Max gang and shit. Well, well, that's the well, that's the mirror that I really see here is you know from reading like a lot of uh, I don't know value form and like communization like this especially I don't know what really came to mind when reading this of uh, the stuff about exit was and notes three <laughs> like uh there's a essay spontaneity mediation rupture where they're taking a sort of heideggerian look at like bulk balkanization and you know the idea that the future like you know even if we have like a communization situation may look like actually you know like rat kind of like different different like delinked colonies of like radical difference and stuff like that you know yeah and i think that idea needs to be pushed against because it's it's, it's present here yeah it's yeah, present it's, here. It, exactly it's what it's what reactionaries argue for like um elaine yeah. de Blinois, well, who's um you know the uh, a big name in the french far right who influences he's yeah. like the big philosopher of the modern far right his argument well, basically is like this localized system of communes. Well, Nicklin kind of like I think he actually like predicts like a rise of like Nazism as like an alternative to the cathedral. Like or white nationalism of some kind as like the alternative to the cathedral. That was his whole like point the, about Hitler, right? Like oh yeah, Hitler the is Antichrist. Evil. Yeah. He's the Antichrist to the the cathedral's heaven or whatever. So, I mean... Yeah. I mean, in a weird way, he kind of predicted the alt-right. Oh, yeah, this is of. very predictive of the alt-right. I mean, and it, it is kind of a lot of... A lot of the ideologists of the alt-right you know, are paying close attention to this. Well, but, yeah, like, the, it, like, back to, like, the horseshoe thing, like... Again, you do sort of see like a left wing and a right wing critique of universalism, and yeah. this like you know this this smacks so much of you know so much for the tolerant left, but his yeah. critique was tremendously stupid because he basically argues that because universalism doesn't um, accept people who want to destroy universalism, the whole thing is a fraud. <laughs> yeah. Which you know it, like all that universalism basically advocates is that you know all people like there's a, a universal conception of humanity where you know all people have common interests upon which they should be politically organized globally like it doesn't say that you know you get to be an asshole yeah and it's it's i mean you know you could say that for far the far right say that anyone who tries to summon up universalism in humanity is just trying to determine who's the enemy and who's the friend, you know, in Carl Schmidt's sense. But I think there is a um, an anti-universalist left that also has a similar vision of the future, I think, than Nick Land, because 
a lot of, you know, today's anarchists, what they want is basically like a federation of communes that are as, you know, locally, you know, subsistent dependent as possible. And, what's, inter- um, what's, what's interesting, though, want to disagree on things. It, it's, it's OK because it's all free federation and stuff. There's a very different view on technology between the two. Uh, where Nick, yeah. Nick Land like is really in this reactionary modernist tradition where, you know, he loves the positivistic side of the enlightenment. He loves what it's capable of and the, the transformative possibilities of it. Yeah. But he also, but he also accepts like the von Miesian proxyology bullshit too, which is weird. It doesn't blend well together because like proxyology is basically like, it's fucking dialectics is for for rightists like yeah it's not even dialectics it's like anglo bastardization of like dialectics it's axiomatic logic gone full insane like just insane to the point where it cannot be disproven all predictions made by proxyology cannot be using proxyology cannot be disproven because it's based on true axioms like you can't disprove it. You, with no empirical evidence, it's math. Oh lord! Really, a equals a. Well, yeah, yeah. there is this really positivistic um, epistemology that Land has, yeah. and so it, it's it's it, it does remind me of classic fascism in that sense because you know the classic fascists also love that kind of positivistic pro-technology sense of the Enlightenment. They just rejected the universalism and democracy and you know you know humanism aspect of it well and that's the first thing that he does in this essay is he basically tries to decouple like historical progress from its ties to democracy and basically argue that if anything like democratic impulses were a hindrance to the development of you know technological yeah. dynamism of the last 200 yeah years. they're 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 keep they're keeping they're keeping richard dawkins from being able to say the n-word and, and calling out the truth of biodiversity. They're keeping John Colt from building his fucking awesome trains and shit. Yeah, it really is. That. It's so close to just infantile libertarian ideology in so many ways, but it's just extra edgy. It, it is. It's basically just paleo libertarianism, but slightly more edgy and with more references to Moldbug. Well, it, this... it, also, it also ignores like how the development of you could say democratic or like you know republican like it ignores like the role that class struggle played in bringing about capitalism which capitalism does have legitimately technologically dynamic things that where societies that have kind of stifled that like say the soviet union were subject to some level of technological stagnation at least you know compared to the west but you know it, it also ignores how like you know like the bourgeoisie used like democratic forms and use those things in order to be, prop up and develop their rule and even maintain this today. It's like, it's, it's a very bizarre thing to try and ignore these two things that work together historically. But so yeah. much of this essay basically runs on ignoring how things developed in history, which, you know, explains like the way that he approaches race. Yeah. Well, another thing can is we, that, uh... can we just talk about like his tangent about like George, like the like the Trayvon Martin. I was going to bring up the same thing. I was going to bring up the same thing. It's really yeah because it's, it's like super cringe inducing. 
Like at one point, he, he calls it black on black crime by the standards oh, of the yeah, left. It was, it was so bad. Which is not true. Like, like the the left has very different standards, than he suggests. Well, how yeah. how, how he, does he, call he, it all, he also crime? he also some he also believes that like la- like white Hispanics are basically like a made up thing that was only brought up to discredit George Zimmerman. Yeah, he really believes no, that he has no idea what like Latinx identity politics are like. Yeah. So he, he basically claims that it was black on black crime because George Zimmerman had black ancestry somewhere. Right. Was, was, yeah, his grandmother by, was black, and he voted Democrat. Room. He can't be racist. He right. can't be racist. Like there was a few seconds where I thought, hmm, maybe, maybe he might be actually right about this in a certain sense. And then I, I, I like looked at the Wikipedia article for, for the, for the Trayvon Martin case, and I read George Zimmerman's account of it, account of what happened, and it's like, it's it, it's ridiculous sounding. He makes Trayvon Martin sound like a gangster from the '90s. Like he says shit like "homie" and "motherfucker" and shit like that. Like, and he jumps, like he ambushes Zimmerman in the account too, in what? George Zimmerman's account. I don't want to like get too lost, like recapitulating like the details of the particular Trayvon Martin case. I mean, I think we can all agree that you know, I mean, like the the account that Nick Land offers of it is pretty ridiculous, and basically. Just it's it, it amounts to sort of hysteric. It's like that that game that people play where it's like I got you now, you son of a bitch, where you just place a, an escalating series of hysterical demands without actually offering like any kind yeah, of alternative. It, it's like he also believes that the case was just selected because you know it's reinforcing a cathedral dogma about race, when really the media just the media likes race issues solely because it gets people angry. It's not about teaching a lesson. It's about ratings. Like it's about even Nicklin kind of knows this. It should be. He should love yeah. it. It's about his favorite thing. It's profit. Woo. It's it's about profit. Like. Basically, capitalism creates everything that he hates, and he he's like it's just not real capitalism. It's it's Marxist, Protestant influenced, degenerate cathedral, not real capitalism. You know, he yep. even acknowledges corporations manipulating the government to get to get shit when he's critiquing social democracy, but he claims that's not real capitalism. Yeah, you know, Protestantism is bad. So what we should have is an economy based on the work ethic dominating all political institutions. Uh, also, well, also, there's something about the dark enlightenment structure that I thought was interesting. It's part one, part two, part three, part four, and then part 4A through F, which suggests to me that he got to the Trayvon Martin thing and was just like, you know what? I was going to do something systematic, but let me just talk about race because who better to talk about race than Nick Land? And yeah. then he just ended up talking like phoning it in by being like, actually, you know, evolution is evolving. White nationalists want their children's face to look like theirs. I want face tentacles. I was just kind of being fake racist the whole time, or maybe, or was I? Um, yeah. I mean, like, I think that if, well, so, so, so even he, if he said nothing about race, the implications of his ideas would be racist. Because yeah. you could have your own like autonomous, well, like decentralized commune monarchy, and no one's allowed to tell you, you know, you know, if you're allowed to be racist or not, it, because it's you know pure property rights. Like libertarians, you know, 
they, they you know they attacked the 1965 Civil Rights Act because it's telling a you know it's a government telling a business a private entity that they can't discriminate yeah. and so for yeah, it's, it's positive rights yeah and it's so positive rights it's not negative rights right, negative exactly. rights are the only real rights <laughs> and so Nigland yeah. kind of shows how if you apply libertarianism enough it, it does lead to inherently racist conclusions well, another thing I was going to say is like his views on Trayvon Martin and are disturbingly similar to like what American Republicans were saying. Like there was, that was just a common opinion amongst, you know, white Americans on the whole thing. Yeah. Well, yeah. Like basically everything Nick Lynch says up until the end is normie conservative or libertarian bullshit. Well, Literally, yeah, it's like, it's like rehab. It's like, Basically, the racism part is just rehash shit from like the bell curve debates, yeah. too. Like, so it, it's it just... basically it, it pathologizes any person or group that fails to live up to basically like the capitalist Protestant work ethic, right? Yeah. Like any group yeah. that doesn't like make itself um, the ideal subject for to excel within like the capitalist system is pathological in some way, and is thus. Uh, subject to like degeneration and crime and so on and so forth and so you know he argues and this that this is the reason that you know like white people in america are afraid of black people and it's the problem is like it's all kind of like intermixed right like it's like the the causes of this have to do with like the the sort of historical development of class and capitalism in the united states and again like the the whole view that he has and the like He's trying to basically explain differences, and I guess what maybe um, Pierre Bourdieu would call like habitus, as a result of like biology and like like personal ethical traits, with complete ignorance to like history. Essentially, like he only like traces out kind of like the history of ideas. He never actually really looks at the way that like material and social yeah. developments have shaped the yeah, current yeah. world. Well, it's entirely fact-free rant. Basically, yeah, yeah. he he cites no statistics for his claims about race. Right. Um, he cites no. Well, he can't really. He he doesn't know how to do that because he's a philosopher. He's not. He's not. He's not. In a in a like social science that uses like his statistics or shit like that. The closest thing he does to that is like talking about how Moldbug has a list of white nationalist blogs that that talk about race a lot in a non in a non-anti-semitic way of course yeah that are not I think, nazis um, one thing about Moldbug is he has he does have two blog entries where he says why i'm not a white nationalist and why i'm not an anti-semite it's actually weird because he says that i think i touched upon this earlier that he sees white nationalism as basically propping up like the digit the dysgenic whites and not, you know, letting yeah. them being uh, well, taken out of the gene pool because, you know, it's it's a, you know, all white peoples, including the poor, uh, desperate ones. And he also says he's not an anti-Semite because he thinks that anti-Semitism is based on resentment by white people towards people who've done better for them. And right, so therefore, I guess like, anti-Semitism feeds into the same kind of resentment that he despises from leftists, I guess. I don't hey, know. hey, moving on up. I guess you could say it's more like culturally chauvinistic than it is like 
classically racist in the sense that like it, he i mean he definitely flirts with race science to a certain extent or says like oh maybe there's something to the bell curve you know what i mean so i mean there is a little bit of that there but it, it seems to be more fixed more interested in like the cultures and the social habits of like different groupings and you know and prioritizing those who it's themselves better to capitalism yeah yeah it is it, it's I mean, really it, ambiguous it's deliberate and deliberately so yeah, like, yeah, and I think that like Nick Land is not a white nationalist. Like I said, I think he wants an aristocracy based on eugenics, regardless of what races get wiped out through his eugenic processes. Yeah. Well, but, he basically he wants to annihilate humanity altogether. Yeah. Well, what's important? I mean, for, before we get to that, um, it isn't one thing I want to talk about is it's interesting how like Shanghai and Hong Kong are kind of function like in his worldview kind of the same way that like Scandinavia does kind of on like the DSA left. Like it's kind of his, his example of kind his of an ideal society that's like, you know, sort of really existing libertarian capitalism. And the, and the funny yeah. thing is they're hyper social democratic too. They're, they're actually yeah, like yeah. a lot of government involvement in the economy. Like a uh, heavy Milton degree. Friedman also props up Hong Kong, and so I was like, okay, what's? Let me actually see what Hong Kong is actually like. And yeah, they have tons of nationalized industry and stuff like that. Of course, they're doing well. Yeah, <laughs> like, it's 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 just really ridiculous. Well, that, it's that's funny too because like he, yeah, because I was gonna say I didn't I didn't look into that, but it's, he in writing about the like the people in these societies like he talks about how their like culture is so great and there's no crime and the people there are responsible and industrious but it's like people say the same thing often about scandinavians and they have some of the most aggressive welfare states on the planet so it's like how does that yeah. how does that gel with his thing about how like incentive yeah. systems yeah. shape like, how societies function like it, it, it's completely yeah. absurd also, on the face. also the idea that like asian countries don't have any kind of organized crime is like just yeah. laughable. Really. Yeah, like the like Hong the Kong Yakuza. movie industry was literally completely run by the triads. <laughs> like the idea that yeah. they don't... Yeah. yeah. It just seems like a very sheltered point of view to think that the United States is the lowest of the low. That's It's just strange. I mean, he does say, oh, well, you know, uh, civilization that includes pockets of this must be said to have failed. But, you know, that's kind of the funny thing about civilization. There's often, you know, these like abject colonies within it that it relies on their underdevelopment for the overdevelopment of the dominant group. That's pretty normal. And even and, if you're a fucking fashy weirdo that gets off on some jouissance domination or something, you should be able to look at history and see that. And he doesn't even promise that like this changed incentive systems will actually fix any of that. Yeah. Well, I think um, his idea of a change in incentive systems would just be you have a tyrannical government that enforces um the capitalist work ethic more efficiently okay so should we get to the monarchy should we talk about the cthulhu shit because like the last the last part of this basically it's really bizarre because he goes on like he said for four sections in one section about race and then at the end he basically said that it's all all that race stuff is pointless and backward looking anyway because g manipulation he he pretty much admits that all politics in general are like pointless at are pointless in the face of like bioengineering bullshit that will just like wipe out humanity will like just alter humanity to the point where it's like indistinguishable 
from like just technology itself. So yeah, let's go over real quickly just like what I just want to talk just in detail and try to get a I want to get a clear sense at least of what he's actually saying he, he, here. He like a direct quote he, for racial nationalists concerned that their grandchildren should look like them. Uh, Campbell is the abyss. Miscegenation doesn't get close to the issue. Think face tentacles. So the idea, well, so he's basically saying that like people with the means and like scientific access will begin experimenting with uh, genetic manipulation in order to enhance their biology and perhaps even their intelligence. And that this will basically create like people who are so advanced from everyone else that they will basically, I don't know, become like the ubermensch and radically change the evolutionary trajectory of the human species into something, you know, beyond what currently exists. Is, is that a fair characterization of what he's saying here? Yeah, I think that's, uh, it's very, um, yeah. like, a, like I said, like a rise of a new aristocracy for eugenics and cyborg, you know, implants and stuff that there's going to be this, um, this new aristocracy that will rule over city states and all these um, surplus populations of useless dredge people will be, you know, used for labor as necessary and exterminated as necessary. Yeah, it basically okay, just, okay. have eugenic plans to keep it all in work. And it's it's very much like this dystopian vision of a neo feudalism with advanced technology. I'll put, I'll, I'll put this, so it goes, okay. Reasoning that the majority of mankind will not voluntarily accept qualitative population management policies. He goes a little bit earlier, he talks about like appeals to like Malthusian problems that there's going to be population problems. But okay, so anyway, Campbell points out that any attempt to raise the IQ of the whole human race would be tediously slow. He further points out that the general thrust of early eugenics was not so much species improvement as the prevention of decline. Campbell's eugenics, therefore, advocates the abandonment of Homo sapiens as a relic or living fossil and the application of genetic technologies to intrude upon the genome, possibly writing novel genes from scratch using a DNA synthesizer. Such eugenics would be practiced by elite groups whose achievements would be so quickly and radically outdistanced the usual temple of evolution that within 10 generations, the new groups will have advanced beyond our current form to the same degree that we transcend apes. Yeah, yeah he's, he's basically talking about the annihilation of humanity through like fucking weird eugenics bullshit. Well, it's, it's yeah, the Althabong. It's, it's the outpabling of humanity. It's the it's the abolition, and in like a kind of Marxist Hegelian sense. I mean, the funny thing is how fucking I know he's Deleuzean, but I mean he just retains the same kind of uh, you know radical negativity. Ends up you know transmuting us and synthesizing the opposing forces. He even drops Octavia Butler here after this fucking shit. Yeah, but the thing with this conclusion is it renders this entire rant pointless. Like everything up until this point has been like one weird, long paleo libertarian rant. And he basically says all that politics is utterly irrelevant due to like, gen due to like bioengineering bullshit. Yeah. Like evolution this, of evolution. Yeah. His, it is. His, his gene spliced Ubermensch basically emerges as like a deus ex machina to this whole like narrative of decline, essentially. Yeah, yeah. I think that's what he's kind of yeah. doing. He's, he's painting this whole narrative of the decline and how like traditional free market economics and whatnot isn't really going to save us. That white nationalism isn't going to save us. That babe, but this kind of explosion of technology will save us, basically. And I do think that he is arguing for a certain type of political structure. 
I mean, I, I don't know. It's feasible. Here's yeah, how I, mean, I, I like. Uh, sorry, go on. Uh, here's how I read this. There's um, th the rise of the alt right, and I guess this is perceptive on his part. Gross, whatever. The rise of the alt right signifies basically something like the Reagan coalition, which was these weirdo white nationalists, um, libertarians, and Christians, right? Like, but now more or less the Christians are gone. There's weirdo white nationalists and libertarians kind of emerged together. There's a more kind of like neoliberal, like loyalist wing that is sort of the old guard. And there's this, uh, you know, residual marginal force. What he's talking about here, and I think the code is in crackers, that, that really cringy part about crackers. Um, he's trying to forge some kind of fictive unity between white nationalism and this libertarian accelerationist project. And the end makes it clear that he sees the white nationalists as useful idiots, but, you know, useful nonetheless. Um, that's kind of well, where I where I would kind of feel out if there's anything practical to be taken from here. I don't think he does that. I think he tries to distance himself as much as possible from the white nationalists without like entirely cutting them off entirely. Like I don't, I don't think he's looking for a practical alliance though. Like he just wants to like talk about race and like a certain extent, an extent like he just. I don't know. I don't think he wants a practical alliance, though. That would make too. That would be too much like politics, which I don't think Nicklin is even really capable of. He's just actually having. He's raising these, you know, racist talking points over and over again, and kind of being like, "I'm not," you know, just doing the thing, which all. Uh, well, a lot of us can recognize this. Okay. Okay. So. I'm going to raise up something that seems like, you know, a, just a tangent or whatever, a side note. But recently on his blog, there was like a big, like, sort of like ongoing flame war between like a few of his regular commenters and like these white nationalists who kept on like posting, kept on harassing him for not being a white nationalist. And they, they did, like, a whole bunch of really dumb things. Like, one of them, like, posted, like, lyrics to, like, some weird neo-Nazi, like, fucking uh, oi or whatever. Like, some fucking race war now, whatever fucking bullshit. Like, white power music lyrics or whatever and shit like that. And it was just, it was cringe-inducing to read. I, I read through a good portion of it. But it, it highlights a general difference between him and, like, white nationalists. Like, he does not actually like white nationalists. Neither does Mulbug. They're racist, but not in this, not in the exact same way as the white nationalists. So yeah. it's like narcissism of difference. Of yeah, I small think that, differences. Um, like, Moldbug and, um, what's his name, Land, Nick Land. Like they kind of see themselves as like Evola or um, someone like that. Because Evola was, you know, <clears throat> this ultra traditionalist philosopher, but he kind of tried to keep a distance from fascism proper because for him, fascism wasn't like the true, like traditionalist hierarchical ideal. It was still a form of mass politics that engaged in the masses. 
and for Evola, like it's it's kind it's just mass politics itself is degenerative, so we don't get involved in that. And so I feel like for Nick Land, maybe he he sees the um he might there might be aspects of white nationalism that he agrees with, but ultimately he's trying to kind of keep a dif- a distance from it because he ultimately thinks that because it's a form of mass politics, period, it's bound to become something destructive yeah. because that's how critical yeah. he is of any kind of politics. I think not even just democracy. Yeah, he 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 literally he literally says identity politics is for losers. Yeah, like straight up. He also identifies politics and democracy. Like he calls his advocacy for monarchy anti-political. So politics as an alienated sphere the way that one might use it from the early Marx isn't exactly where he's taking that. It's just democracy in general. See, but that's arguing that like, uh, if you have a monarchy, that there's just like organic connection between the governor and the governed. So I think he's, that kind of buys into some reactionary like ideas about traditional societies being like organic and based on. No, certainly. No, I mean, how is advocating for a king not a political position? Yeah, exactly. But he tries to, like, you know, make it so that it's really not political because they're just another market actor that's... Well, well, because it it would be eliminating politics because we're talking nominalistically about politics. Politics means what we have now. I mean, maybe, maybe... Maybe Nicklin's thought is more like a bastardization of, like, Anglo-Enlightenment ideals, really. Like even stretching back farther than libertarian, the i the idea of absolute monarchy was associated with the Enlightenment, and specifically with Thomas Hobbes, like the idea of the sovereign ruling over mm-hmm. like people, absolutely. Well, Hobbes to prevent a state of nature. Yeah, he talks a lot about Hobbes as kind of his inspiration because his vision of society is a war of all against all which is, you know, basically libertarianism. You know, everybody is, you know, a commodity in the market competing with each other. And so his solution to the war against of, of all against all is monarchy. And so he's for yeah. this kind of hyper-competitive libertarian society, but he just thinks that in order to keep it from degenerating, you need to have a strong, like, monarch or whatever – dictator or a constitutional republic or something yeah just there just can't be any voice for the you know the masses like the masses have to be excluded from having any control over governance whatsoever gotta keep that gold standard i can't believe we actually fucking read this fucking shit holy shit i mean i thought it it was dumb camp I thought his early shit was like kind of dumb, but and you know what? Like I always like had a weird feeling about that kind of '90s like nihilistic, misanthropic, like yeah, yeah, crush, kill, burn it all, you know, riot, riot, like kind of thing. Because I would think to myself, well, people would get really hurt, and I don't know if it would work. And but I mean, at least it's from the left, you know. Like at least it's not something that would tend towards some kind of weird fascistic politics at some point once someone grows up and realizes that the huge authoritarian specter that they theorized is something so unstoppable that you would have to like really you know commit yourself to a difficult life to remain opposed to it and so you've reified this incredible like being of negative power and so you know you take the niche in turn and you sort of love it because it's fate you love you love Big Brother. Well, that's the thing. Like this dude never grew up. Like I'm telling you, I'm convinced that okay, I was I was doing the math. He's 55. 
So he was in his early 20s when cyberpunk was a thing, right? And he just got really, really, really into that shit and just never got over it. Yeah, yeah I, well, I definitely saw a lot of cyberpunk of this. This is this his very futuristic idea of what he wants the world to be like. Uh, he basically wants these like Blade Runner-esque city-states all trading with each other. And they're ruled by like, you know, the God Emperor. You know, corporations. It's it's, it's, it's very right. um it's yeah, there's the corporate government government ruled by the god emperor. It's there's just this I don't know, there's a lot of cyberpunk in here, futurism. Yeah, cyber, is, cyber cyberpunk dystopia doesn't go well with Marxism. It's uh, high tech, low life. It's that despite all of our advancement, we're unable to overcome class society. And in fact, it polarizes, gets worse than ever. It's yeah. it, it could be Marxist in a way, you know, in terms of that structural critique that, oh, you know, we have super advanced technology, but it's only used to alienate and exploit us. But it's not Marxist in that stronger sense of actually yeah. <laughs> in the political sense. Yeah. yeah. Well, also... He goes on like a weird tangent, like a half half jokingly tangent about like antisocial people being oppressed by society and them only and them only be the only ones actually being able to see the truth because like social intelligence is really not not a form of intelligence and whatever. But he never like takes into consideration that maybe he's just like what if he what if he's like just an He's an antisocial jackass. Not only is he an antisocial jackass, but he's also wrong. So there's <laughs> no virtue to him. There's no virtue to being an antisocial jackass and being yeah. wrong at the same time. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm an as an antisocial jackass who is right all the time. I can say that that is in fact the case. Well, the thing, another thing about land that I notice is it's it's quite different from a lot of the other stuff I've seen from the alt right. There's similarities. Don't get me wrong, but I mean, I dare say it's quite it's it's quite a bit smarter than much of the alt right stuff. But um, that's, that's saying something, Don. Yeah, and that's saying something. I and mean, I think a lot of that comes from his back. I, I mean, I'm comparing this to say something by Richard Spencer. What Richard Spencer has to say. They <laughs> both are kind of at the same intellectual level, but. And, and you know this guy's smarter than Richard Spencer. I'll give him that. Yeah, but he he's he's I, I, yeah. Wow. I guess I'll say he's smarter than Richard Spencer. Give him a medal. But um, <laughs> he doesn't I, have. I, the I, I'll give him a participation a, trophy. Sorry. He, well, he, he, get, say, he though, gets like a smiley face sticker. No, he doesn't yeah, have the focus on identity fight. and um, whiteness that um the rest of the alt right has. Like he is racist and he does believe in race realist stuff. But ultimately, like his end goal isn't a pan-white empire where white people, you know, or Europa unites with America, and we have like this, you know, great global North dictatorship over the rest of the world. Uh, he doesn't like Nick Land has a very different kind of a view of politics, and he he's not basing his view off of um you know white identity. Which really is what the alt right in in America is. It's it's, it's white identitarianism. He he and, just sort of he just sort of takes like a white revanchism and you know black 
you know, lingering desire for emancipation as, you know, two sides of a social dialectic, you know, and you yeah, he sees a, it as a race war. Yeah. You're a liberal. If you don't see this as a debate, like, which is, you know, something that's hard to get my head around. So yeah, this, he, guy, this guy has to be into Trump, right? He likes Trump. I, why not? Right. I mean, I mean it, yeah, makes, it fits with he's his an aesthetic. accelerationist and Trump is, you know, no, he, he's, nothing. He's, if not a force of acceleration. And it's and also like Trump kind of, you know, he says he wants to run the country like a business and Nick Land thinks that the state needs to be run like a business. And he is very 80s I'm, in his aesthetic, right? Like he is kind yeah. of like a cyberpunk idea of what I'm a not, president would I'm be. not sure. It's been yeah. a while since I checked his Twitter. Like his Twitter is basically just normie libertarian shit. Yeah, and a lot of um, anti-refugee shit, I think. Yeah, Ooh. like a lot of it. Like he complained about like fucking non-binary people and trans people, and hey. people just his Twitter followers just like kept on like quoting this one passage from his early work where he talks about like um oh yeah meltdown STD like he talks about like yeah. arming STD riddled trannies or I'm well no that's it's what like meltdown has has a place for you as a Chicana transsexual sex worker who's HIV positive and who just iced a bunch of cops with some machine guns and is on some crazy ass drugs and female orgasm replicators. You know, it's like a really yeah. awesome matrixy cyberpunk, like anti-authoritarian, yeah. like total, yeah, not like n n no, no essence, all like, you know, artifice and bringing together. There's something I find kind of attractive about that seductive vision and to see that go where it goes. So in the nineties, he unreal. kind of was like uh, culturally to the left. Like he was in these like tr left wing transgressive type uh, of Yeah, things. he was like he was like a character you would run into in a Richard Linklater movie. Yeah, because he, yeah. he, he wrote a book about George Bataille, and George Bataille is basically the master leftist edgelord of, you know, going of you know being a leftist and a transgressive, you know, and just spitting on everything that's bourgeois morality. Is, is he like the the guy who wrote, wrote the eye in the vagina story? Like, is that that one? Yeah, um, the yeah, the story, story of the eye. eye. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, I recommend I, I recommend reading him. He's very. I, I I read him because Bjork liked him, and I was like, I lost a little respect for Bjork. I'm like, what the fuck is this? Yeah, rich people are basically just sociopaths and high literature is just them fucking jerking off to, like, suffering and shit like that. I, I really actually believe that, and it, that, more than anything, makes me think of degeneracy. It's high literature. Yeah. Well, I think, I think Nick Land today would probably agree with you, and he'd be like, well, I was there, and I saw it myself, and I know how degenerate these people get. <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, th that's the scary thing when you're you're looking at all the different like theories of decadence on the left or, you know, ideas like very nominalistic takes on democracy and so how social progress is a lie and universalism is bad. And oh, yeah. Like, I mean, just if you would spend any time with the Internet left and you talk about democracy, progress you use those words you get instantly like shat upon and just like oh you, democracy is evil progress is a bourgeois fiction blah 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 and you yeah. know Nick Land is basically saying the same stuff like but he's yeah. just coming well, at it from the different sure. perspective well yeah basically it's it's yeah. you know the poor are, are completely not responsible for or the, the oppressed are completely not responsible for anything that happens to them versus it's all the oppressed's fault right? yeah like that's, I, that's the division there 
Well, I, I, I do think it's interesting that, you know, someone like Nick Land can see this. And then I'll bring EndNotes back into this because EndNotes to me has the virtue of trying to integrate the critique of capital with a critique of racism and a critique of gender and kind of have like a sense of abolition of all those things. Um, and, you know, kind of being able to detect how integrated these circuits are. And it's not just a, you know, the way intersectional has become used as a piecemeal theory of oppression. Um, I don't know. It's, it's interesting that people that can see this linkage between economics and, and race, like how intrinsic I mean, it is, can take these radically, I mean, can take similar positions and then take, I don't know. It's very confusing. It's, just, it's really yeah. bizarre. Well, I mean, there was like a sort of a weird feeling that I had throughout reading it was I, I felt gaslit almost really like he kept on saying that all that pretty much everything, any kind of like resistance to his like worldview was basically just sort of like a religious based faith based reaction. That was just hysterical in every way. Yeah. And, and he's the true logical one. Uh, which yeah, is okay. like on on the on the, on the small brain big but, brain scale like he's like like uh, sam like richard dawkins but, is small brain sam harris is like the next brain and then he's like the top but, like he's the ultimate like capital l but, logic yeah. guy alex like, gray meditation like, painting i have yeah i have to admit i have to admit a lot like basically the straw man of like the straw man that he sets up is at least partially true for a good portion of like the left i it scares me to a degree but i've i've like seen it firsthand and it just it bothers me deeply it bothers me deeply to see like you know weird clintonite people claim to have like an edgy radical politics because they they use buzzwords like intersectionality or like de or like weird academics who are basically advocating for some kind of weird reverse health uh advocating for helter skelter bullshit but it's just like they exist and it just bothers me to a degree that i just can't get over like maybe it's the town i live in maybe it's just the people that i talk to online but it, it's uh, maybe i'm just living in a weird bubble a weird liberal bubble yeah. i can't escape it we, we, all, we all live in bubbles yeah but p part of what grounds me is i hate to say this because you know you want to talk about religious but hey reading marx like you know what made me feel a lot better about that straw man about oh you know leftists they just want everyone to be equal don't they know that people are different if you go to critique of the Goethe program marx is very explicit about how different people are yeah and and, and but, but, there's uh, a sophisticated left-wing tradition that isn't as fixated on social justice and I only really critique social justice from the critique of justice in general. <laughs> yeah, and exactly. Like justice itself is kind of a um, I'm not proto, against proto-socialist concept because you know in the French Revolution you still had mostly a society where people were small proprietors, and so egalitarian struggles for equality tended to be that everyone has like an equal amount of property. But what Marx realizes is with the proletariat, the struggle for equality can take on a different kind of, it's not leveling anymore. Now it's, you know, it's a more, um, 
There's more. Well, when society is able to produce more than anyone could possibly need, yeah. like you don't need to have equality because you know what I mean. <laughs> like, well, yeah, it's, I, I do. I do want to cop to the idea that you know everyone's abilities are worth dignifying and integrating and everyone's needs are worth being met is a kind of very strong egalitarianism. Yeah, I think that, everyone, yeah. all humans are created equal and have an equal, you know, what that means is that, you know, all humans have an equal rights to, you know, live the life of the maximum amount of flourishing. Yeah. Well, regardless of who they're, you know, you know like how we should, we should, we should try and secure like, like we should like try and get like the best possibility for all citizens all all of humanity really just yeah. like yeah or at least the majority of it you know well what about rape what about rapists you can't have them in there so burst your little bubble we'll yeah. just kill them yeah but i mean Hugh, the way that, the, way that the right talks about equality is they act like you have like a, a lawn where all the blades of grass are like different and you just take your lawn mower and just you know, you know, mow over it, and all, and what you get is just like all the, all the blades of grass are now the same, and it's just this smooth, you know, lawn where everyone is the same. I mean, that's what they the think equality means for Marxists. What they're thinking of is really like a kind of, you know, cooperation strategy in a social Darwinist like artificial selection tank. Like is, and if you remove the artificial selection tank, you lose that dynamic. But they don't want to do that. Yeah. Yeah. So, anyway, by the way, I was saying about the alt rights. This is, you know, really different from the alt right. But I wonder how much it actually like influenced any of that stuff. Uh, you know, I because don't know. part of my theory about how the alt right came into existence was through basically the libertarian movement kind of formed as a reaction to basic conservatism. But the libertarian movement couldn't actually, you know, deliver on people's promises. Like the things that people were really grieved by, libertarianism had nothing for them. And so they started moving into the alt-right. Because let's just face it, all these people who, a lot of these people who hate the Republicans but are still conservatives, their, their complaints about the Republicans are, oh, they're not hard enough on, you know, race issues and immigration issues. Yeah, stuff like, like that. And Ron they, Paul was became, very anti-immigration. They and did have connections. They basically to white became. Yeah, was he they basically Wow. Well, yeah, they Ron basically Paul did became have connections to them. Sorry, what are you gonna say, yeah. Rosa? Yeah, basically, they became dissatisfied with just dog whistle racism, and they wanted something more blatant. And they felt the Republican Party, you know, was just not really working for them. You know, you know, they were like, they were just like, tot toting this sort of Martin Luther King, well, a str like a like a cartoon version of Martin Luther King's like anti-racism, which is basically just uh, everyone's. When you you just look at everyone the same way, and you know it doesn't matter if like economic policies just yeah don't really help black people statistically or whatever. Well, yeah, it you comes know? from like the paleoconservative wing of libertarianism, which Ron Paul was part of. So I think Ron Paul kind of got that started on actually a, a political level before it was just kind of like these small groups. A paleo conservatives who maybe sometimes would get on the media but rarely ever and mostly just had their own journals and stuff and then 
with Ron Paul, if they started, you know, attracting more people in this direction of politics, and then Trump really allowed it to kind of blow up. Yeah. Yeah, basically. It's and I just think like this the natural... kind of reveals how that happened. It's... Yeah, it's the natural it's the natural decay of American conservatism. You know, yeah. The degeneration. Just... Yeah, the degeneration of it. It drops all pretenses of equality or and like uh, ML. I mean, even Richard Spencer was still part of the pseudo M- libertarian. Um, he was a yeah, libertarian yeah. before it's, he became. It's a dropping all lock. It's dropping all pretenses to Lockean liberalism or any higher ideals other than white identity politics. It's dropping like the entire ideological mask that it's been wearing for years since. Yeah. Since the civil rights movement, really. Well, th- that's what makes this pretty interesting is that while it, it has a sort of sympathy for white nationalism, even if he wants to distance himself from it, whatever, still sympathizing, um, he ends up reassert- yeah. he, well, he ends up reasserting the libertarian position after the recognition that fascism is basically like, you know, not not fascism, but, you know, reactionary modernism that's not the F word, not the 1930s, I promise. Da, 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 da. Like, yeah. Well, I actually do think that, you know, if this, you know, if fascism did come back and actually try to execute its program, I think it would look, it would, it would, it would look different from 1930s fascism. In a Absolutely. Lot of ways because like, it would be like, but these people, modern fascists really seem to want is a society that goes back to localism. And that seems to kind of be what Nick Land wants, because he wants a society that's based on a parcellation of sovereignty, where every city and city-state is its own sovereignty, basically. And um, a lot of people in the European New Right kind of have this idea, where basically, you know, there's no more federal government, instead you have you know, just separate, you know, governments that are kept, that can keep to themselves and do whatever they want. And if you don't like it, you can leave. I mean, there are some circuits of disintegration, but does this sound like the capitalism that runs the world to you? That it's going to just sort of stand by where there's lots of balkanization? Like, isn't the overall tendency still going to be towards integration of capital circuits? I mean, it's, it really depends if you, how much you think capital inherently works towards that i mean i think capital has a tendency towards centralization but the thing is also has a tendency towards crisis and this crisis can make capital reshape itself in a different way sure i mean mean, also i mean i've heard arguments from like environmentalists that like a relocalization is going to be necessary as as a response to climate change so if you want to look at like a really dystopian scenario it could you know it could link up yeah that's the thing is climate change brings about mass immigration and the popularity of far right ideas increases ethnic tension. And so you can see a situation where, you know, this, you know, climate change could lead to a relocalization and a ethnic cleansing of types. If you know, the right oh. people don't win. Oh, yeah. I mean, look, look, at, look at how much wind got put in the sails just from the whole Syrian refugee thing for Christ's sakes. Yeah, you think, and you think that was that's bad? That's nothing compared to you know the level of migration that's going to be necessitated by global climate change. It's, it's, there's going to be a lot more immigration, and borders are going to have to become a lot less important. But I don't know. This could be like a far right way of dealing with that problem. I don't know. Yay! 
Well, it's this yeah. still strikes me as bizarre because I don't know. I um, thinking about the essay on logistics from EndNotes three that has the argument for delinking the global economy. How, um, per, you know, we you can't rely on the continuation of the integration of the productive forces, and you know. It's 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 not he's not like explicitly saying reinstitute the dignity of labor in the fields, comrade. But it's you know you, you get the feeling that he wants everybody involved in food production, that kind of thing. Go to the countryside. He 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 actually thinks that it's a viable option that people will volunteer to go to the countryside and start farming and restart civilization from there. Because he, a, we, you know, he is a further. Extrapolation and something called the belly of the revolution. But anyway, like these are arguably not just right wing ideas. They're sort of in the air there. Yeah, they're in the air in the ultra left and the anarchist left. And yeah, it's, it's, I think those ideas need to be fought against because I think if there is any hope for humanity, it's going to be some kind of centralized global government. You know, that still obviously yeah. gives democratic, you know, you know, control to local communities, but ultimately yeah. they're still accountable to a, a central world government. Yeah. Also, also the transhumanism stuff is just horrific. It's just like frightening beyond belief to me. Honestly, yeah. It's like let's let's fix humanity before we um trans completely you know destroy it and leave yeah. it behind for something it's, better. Screw you guys. I'm pro gene. I want I want robot arms and gene splicing and shit. Yeah, I mean, I'm all for that stuff, but let's just get communism first. So yeah, we need to abolish this. class society first, so it doesn't create weird yeah. like class yeah. species and shit. Yeah, we don't want to have. Yeah, I don't want a recreation of the aristocracy through. I mean, maybe maybe yeah, you could get I, into like a biology. I don't want it to thing, be, but I don't know. I feel like you'd. I don't want it to be eugenics. That's all I want. I don't want it to be like a weird eugenics thing. Yeah, but I mean, I'm I don't legitimately know, like, afraid of that sort of thing. I mean, robots would basically make like human labor obsolete. So, you know, we want we want like good robots as fast as possible. Yeah, I'm, but we also I'm, need communism as fast as possible. I, I feel I feel the same way about like integrating my body with computers as I do about like universal basic income. That unless you know the class composition is correct, it will only be suffering and pain and black mirror. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Like I don't know. Anyway, I'm basically the opposite of Nick Land. <laughs> like, <laughs> if I describe my politics, I describe it as like the complete opposite of Nick Land. Like everything that Nick Land supports, I'm against. Yeah, there's like there's no commonalities we really have. Maybe guess, except that we have a kind of futuristic vision. Of, yeah, yeah. I was yeah. gonna say is that we actually do sh that. That's the thing that makes me sympathetic to left accelerationists is that they're trying to reimagine a communist future. And I, I don't know who, if, if anybody spells this out, but I have like a feeling in my gut in a kind of Ticton sense. We never read Ticton, but we should. Like Ticton thought that the Soviet Union and like von Mises' uh, critique of the Soviet Union was basically correct. And that if I understand his argument correctly, um, you know, like the Paul Cockshot line is that recent advances in technology have overcome uh, that problem, like Lagrangian multipliers, something I don't understand. Yeah, well, the point the point being is that the that's compatible with what the accelerationists are taking from Marx in that you know capitalism's acceleration of productive forces has solved the problem that communism couldn't overcome 
And maybe it wasn't primarily a technical problem that communism had, but it was certainly partially a fucking technical problem that the, the Stalinist I mean, regime. That, that could be a good topic for a future podcast. Yeah, that's that's good for a future. Like, well, I mean, he like um he brings Paul Cockshot brings up like computers basically being able to do like millions of calculations. Most modern computers being able like supercomputers being able to do millions of calculations, making the whole calculation problem even more irrelevant than it already was. Like to a certain degree, certain degree, it was always sort of a weird straw man, but that's a whole different topic, I guess. Yeah. I mean, Tickton, I don't see him as saying that Mises is right because he locates the dysfunction of the Soviet economy in the alienation of the workers and their inability to collectively make decisions. Well, uh, Tickton, collectively... Tickton has corresponded with the Von Mises Institute and like, All right, that makes me freaked out because that's just, well, weird. well uh, no, basically Von Mises Institute contacted him and said, are you seriously a Marxist that agrees with Mises's read of the Soviet union? And Tickton is more or less like, well, yeah. Well, I think that, um, it's Mises, like Tickton, I guess, agrees with Mises to the extent where he says, where you can't have true planning, the only alternative is the market. Right. The political and, economy of waste. That's so, yeah. So I guess what t where Tickton and Mises would, would disagree is that Tickton would say that it is possible to have planning that works, whereas Mises is saying that it's impossible to have planning that works. Yes, that's right. So, I mean, I would say they agree. I mean, I guess I agree with Mises Institute then. Well, th that's why I'm saying there's a sort of left accelerationist uh, orientation that I think makes sense. And I wish that it could be delandified because it did turn out to be a race realist weirdo. Yeah, I guess. I mean, I guess my argument is that um, the way that capitalism develops forces of production is ultimately is ultimately turning out to be, you know, destructive to the planet and the human race. So that, you know, we need new relations of production that these productive forces develop on the basis from so we can have, you know, even if it means that we don't have the insane technologies that, you know, some of these futurists predict, like, ultimately it comes down to our human needs even being met and that in this case society the economy does not meet human needs so i think you need to start from that basis essentially that's it for this week this episode was a little bit all over the place the problem was i think this piece was just so bizarre we didn't really know where to start there were just so many different things that we would just jump all around and then go, oh, and this thing, and this thing, and then this thing was fucked up, and this didn't make any sense, which ties into this thing. So, if the piece wasn't super clear in terms of how it developed, because we were jumping around all throughout it, I apologize. Though, to be honest, I can't really promise that the piece will make a whole lot more sense if you sit down and read it for yourself. So, anyway... Next week is going to be a news roundup episode, so looking forward to that. If you want to support the show, give us a like on Facebook or leave us a good review on iTunes. If you want to get a hold of us, 
you can email us at swampsidechats at gmail.com. So until next time, keep your boots clean, your feet out of the swamp, and your head in the revolutionary clouds of tomorrow. <laughs>